tonight's topic, um, I just feel, um, I'm really excited for what we're going get, to be getting into. Um, it's something that's been on my heart for a long time. Um, it's a topic that I'm very interested about. Um, honestly, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about. I feel like I just, I can't, everywhere I go, I, I can, I'm in, come in contact with it, I can't get it out of my head. Um, it's always being, it's constantly being talked about in the circles that I run. Just, every conversation, I feel like we like come in contact or talk about this topic. And honestly, it's something I have a really, a burning desire and passion for. Um, oh, that's, that's actually next week's topic, Brandon. We're not going to be talking about uh, Song of Solomon tonight. Um, this is a, it's a little too PG-13 for us, so. That was my obligatory sermon joke. We made it through that together in one piece. Good job, guys. Pat yourself on the back. We can, we can go forward now. We're not going to be in Song of Solomon tonight. Um, next week. Come back next week. This place is going to be packed next week. Um, but I don't know. That stuff is true, though, um, what I shared about the topic that we're actually going to be getting into tonight, um, which is the topic of brokenness. And um, specifically, I've titled this the, the blessedness of brokenness. And so why this teaching? Um, well, a while ago, I was talking with a friend. And he said, like, if you could write a book on any topic, what would you pick? And I thought for a second. I said, the brokenness of man. And so when I was picking a topic for, they said, you're doing the teaching on the 28th, I chose the brokenness of man. Um, but more so than that, um, I think that in being in the college ministry and getting to talk to so many of you, my friends in this room, I know that this is something that we all encounter, that you guys encounter, that I encounter, um, and it's a really prevalent thing. Um, Every single, one of this, every single one of us in this room experiences brokenness in one form or another. And so let's talk to God before, uh, before we continue on in, uh, in the teaching. Lord, we just come before you as a body, Father, and we welcome you into this place. God, we're not here um, to listen to the words of a man, of a human, but we want to hear the words of God. So we welcome you in to speak, God. Would you please do that tonight? In Jesus' name. Grab a sip of water real quick. How many of you guys are familiar with Lamar Odom, that name? Decent number. Lamar Odom was a basketball player um, about 10 years ago in the 2010s, and he was a really good one at that um, in the era that I watched basketball. So that was like a household name, um, considering my brother was a Lakers fan too. So 
He was a two-time NBA champion with the Los Angeles Lakers in 2009 and 2010. Um, was Kobe Bryant, one of the greats. He won the FIBA Basketball World Cup gold medal in 2010. And he won the sixth man of the year in 2011. Just like, it's like back to back to back, boom, boom, boom. 29, or 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, experiencing a lot of uh, career success. In 2009, he also married Khloe Kardashian, who um, from the show Keeping Up with the Kardashian, one of the Kardashian sisters. Um, but no one here watches that, right? Because that's a waste of time. Um, I digress. Um, and in 2011, he got his own show. He was featured a lot on the show, um, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. In 2011, he and Khloe uh, got their own show called Khloe and the Moor. So at this point in his life, he had career success, wealth, a celebrity wife, a large-scale fame. Dude had everything. He's like, I would just go everywhere. They'd throw out red carpets in front of me. It was in October of 2015 that the world got just shocking news about this guy, kind of out of left field, where he was in the news for a completely different reason. Odom was found unconscious in a Las Vegas brothel where over five days, the span of five days, he had binged $75,000, was found overdosed on cocaine, and the doctors said they found literally every single drug in this guy's blood, and he came inches away from death. He'd suffered 12 seizures, six strokes, and his heart stopped twice. And so you think... How, how did it all come to this for this guy? He had, this guy had everything. How did he come to this point in his life? What brought him here? The answer, brokenness, our topic for tonight. He had unresolved brokenness. He had unresolved stuff in his past. He grew up with a negligible dad who was a heroin addict. A single mom who died from cancer when he was 12 years old. So he basically grew up on his own without a solid parent figure. Um, and he had a son later in his life who died from SIDS as, uh, when the, his son was six months old. During this five-day binge where he blows $75,000, it's said that from the people who were there that he would just have times where he would break down and cry. And then he'd go party, 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 and then he'd break down and cry. And the source said he told the people there some, um, that he was a broken man, that he thought his life was a mess and he had no direction. In an interview, Odom, on the whole thing, what led him to this point, Odom himself says, you're looking to fill that void with things. And you know, some things I was trying to fill that void with were destructive. So how did Odom deal with his brokenness from that void? More brokenness. Self-inflicted brokenness. He turned to sin and debauchery, right? So as we can see, I mean, brokenness we all know that within the church, but it's not within, just within the church, right? I mean, it, it, it doesn't take two seconds for us to see that. Brokenness doesn't discriminate. 
All people, even the ones who have the most of what life has to offer, as Odom did, experience deep brokenness. We know and see this on a macro level, right? Or on a micro level. We know that in individual lives, like, like in Odom's. We, we see that in our own hearts, in our own lives, on a micro level, on a personal level. We see it in pop culture a lot. Odom's just one of so many celebrity stories we could have thrown up there. Yet, on a macro level, what we see is something a little bit different that's being said. In academia, specifically, the scholars of our age have taken a different approach to this entire idea of brokenness and whatnot. Um, for example, Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure that many of you guys are familiar with and have heard his name, the staunch atheist, one of the four, four horsemen of the new atheists. Um, he's a Darwinian evolutionist. Look at what he says in this 2006 uh, quote in an article on edge.org. Uh, he says, why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers or on thuggish vandals when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? Presumably because mental constructs like blame and responsibility, indeed good and evil even, are built into our brains by millennia of Darwinian evolution. Assigning blame and responsibility is an aspect of the useful fiction only of intentional agents that we construct in our brains. And another quote, he says in the same article, he says, an especially warped and disgusting application of the flawed concept of retribution is Christian crucifixion as atonement for sin. What's Dawkins saying here? He's saying that what you perceive as any real substantial brokenness within you, that's, that's not true. You're nothing more than just a faulty unit in his own words, right? That's it. There's no blame, no responsibility, again quoting him, all you are is just, uh, you're no different than the um, shopping cart with the squeaky wheel. It just needs to be tightened a little bit. That's it. And he says that words to be condemned the most are ones like atonement and sin. Words that assume you're anything less than just a faulty, um, what do you say, faulty unit anything less um, than a, a malfunction, or I'm sorry, anything more than a faulty unit, or anything more than a malfunctioning part. He's saying you and the pipe that just needs to be tightened a little bit in your house, you're the same thing. Dawkins isn't alone in this view. He's not a black sheep. He represents a large way of thinking um, in academia. This is what naturalism is. It boils down any real emotional pain or malady within you and just calls it purely mechanical. It's just a facade. You just think you're broken. That's not really the case. Okay. Look at this next quote. This is almost, almost like pro, 
pro retroactively, this guy, um, it's like he's speaking exactly to what Dawkins is saying. This guy is another um, academician. Hobart Maurer was, um, he was a psychologist. He was the president of actually the American Psychological Association and a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois in the 20th century. And um, he, was, he, like, he was a professor emeritus in research in psychology at Harvard. This guy was no scrub. And look at what he says, Hobart Maurer. Um, For several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and acclaimed our liberation from it as epoch-making. But at length, we have discovered that to be free in this sense, that is, to have the excuse of being merely sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger of almost becoming lost. In becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free, we have cut the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics themselves, we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? Wow. What's Maurer saying? It's almost like he's speaking exactly to what Dawkins says, but he was from the 20th century. He's saying, if we could just get rid of sin, we could finally be free. It would be epoch-making, as he says, revolutionary. Or he's saying, that's, a, that's what we thought. Right? The implication being that without sin, there would be no brokenness. We'd finally be liberated. And this weight this, of this word sin would finally be off of us. Instead, what does he say is the result of, what, of that? He says, when we rejected this idea of sin, we lost our sense of self. From those last lines, you can see, right? We've cut the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood, and we're asking, who am I? What's my deepest destiny? What does living mean? the most fundamental questions we can't answer anymore. Why? Because we've thrown out this idea of sin. Maurer ended up taking his life, actually, in 1982. It's sad that he, he makes a, such a poignant comment like that and his life results in that. As a result of depression, he ends up taking his life. Let's step back a little bit. What we're seeing here is two opposing views. In one situation, as in the case of Odom, it's he dove full force into his brokenness. He just nosedived into his brokenness without a second thought. And he pursued it. In the case of Dawkins, he rejected the notion entirely of brokenness. He says it's just a facade. It's not even there. It's not even real. Our culture is confused. After looking at these sobering examples, and I think, I think now we're left asking ourselves, if pop culture doesn't know it, if, academic, if the academicians don't know it, the scholars, how, how do we deal with the idea of brokenness within our own lives, in our own hearts? How do we view it? 
I think our response to this is vital because people don't know how to respond to it and their lives are ending like that of Odom's. It's flowing out from what, how they view it, their actions are. The guy was inches away from death. So how do we commonly, I think in the church, view deal, uh, deal with brokenness? Off the top of my head, I was able to come think of a couple of reasons. First one being avoidance. I think that oftentimes we can avoid our brokenness and coming in contact with it. We try not to deal with it. Um, maybe if I can avoid it, it'll go away. And I think a lot of times what we do is we try to maneuver around it or maneuver around situations that would make us come in contact with it and deal with it. I think a second way is denial. The idea of completely rejecting any sense of brokenness. Um, just trying to explain it away. No, that's, that's not really what that was. I just, etc. right? Um, we can deny it to others, to ourselves. I think we can deny it to God. That denial route, that rejection route, is I think what Dawkins did, Right? He denied the idea of brokenness. And I think the final way is uh, shame. Um, I wonder how many of us here are familiar with shame, that word. I think many of us are. That, those feelings of guilt, self-disgust that you just have to sulk in, that kind of like weight that's on you, that you just feel condemned to, that you sit in. I wonder if I'm the only one who's ever felt that kind of thing before. And I think oftentimes what we experience is some sort of combination of all this stuff. And there's more than these, but with these, I think what we see a lot of time is public avoidance and private shame. Shame can leave us feeling embarrassed and disqualified. It's the idea of, if others really knew me, they wouldn't want me. Or, man, I just am too broken. I'm, if others knew, um, or, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm too broken. I'm too messed up. I can't do anything for God. How many times have we said that to ourselves, felt that? You know? Um, J.I. Packer, the theologian, has this awesome little book called Weakness is the Way, where he hits on a lot of what we're talking about. Um, he speaks to this kind of idea of shame or, or yeah, weakness. Um, he says, subjectively, the sense of being weak, which the weak yet intelligent person can hardly avoid, generates feelings of inferiority and the uselessness and worthlessness, along with cons consequent gloom and depression, not at all happy feelings to deal with. The sense of weakness casts a cloud over one's existence. Yeah, I think he, hits it, he says it well, feelings of inferiority. How many times have you felt inferior because of your brokenness? Worst of all, I think that shame 
can put a barrier between us and God. I think that's the worst thing that it does. On how he views us, we think that he views us poorly and negatively, and he's upset with us, and he thinks we're gross and disgusting. And that can cause us to lose our sense of intimacy with him. Literally, the thing that we were created for, intimacy with God, shame puts a barrier um, between us and God. Brokenness can take away our zest for life and the life giver. We can wake up every day dull. It has the power to steal joy, consume minds, and take lives. So here's the main point with all this stuff. I think the way that we see brokenness within the church needs to be radically transformed. Not as something that we're condemned to, but rather exactly the opposite. The key to spiritual blessedness. We need to have the proper biblical perspective on this issue. Not the Dawkins perspective, not the Odom perspective, not even the Armand perspective. We need to go to the word of God Right? And I think that um, this is what the Word of God is saying. So we're going to do this by um, trying to look at this biblical perspective of how we are to view our brokenness um, by looking at two, two guys, two case studies, I think, um, of people in the Bible who understood this um, David and Paul. New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So. Stick with me on this, because I think that what we're about to look at is very simple, but very vital and incredible um, when we truly understand it. So first, David from the Old Testament. We all know David, right? A lot of us are familiar with him. The great king of Israel, who was then king of Judah, and then uh, became reunified and was king of Israel. The one who defeated Goliath, um, the, the man of faith, the one after God's own heart, the one who wanted to build the temple for God. David wanted to do a lot of, he was an awesome guy. He was a spiritual guy. He did a lot of cool things for God. Yet he also did one terrible thing that it's almost as if his life was marked by. And a lot of us probably know this story. It's that he committed adultery and depending on your interpretation, raped a woman or married woman, um, Bathsheba, and then goes and like in fear, goes and murders her husband um, to try to cover it up. And so David has done this. It's, it's after he's like that, committed adultery um, and slept with her. And then um, he's murdered Uriah. And then uh, the prophet Nathan approaches him. And he says, you know, David, hypothetically, if there was a guy in this situation, and he ex- describes exactly what David did, he's like, how would you, what would you do with that guy? And David's like, oh, that, man, that guy should, that's terrible. That guy should be um, put to death. That's, that's horrible, blah, blah, blah. And Nathan says, David, that man is you. And in one moment, it's like David is like, he, it dawns on him what he did. And he's broken over what he did. And then he writes Psalm 32. So that's the context for Psalm 32. And instead of kind of looking at it all at, this, all at once, Um, I kind of want to break it up to show you the evolution or the timeline of David's thinking. Um, 
with some of that. So starting, Psalm 32, starting in verses three and four. Try to track along, because the evolution is really, the timeline is really important here. So verse, Psalm 32, verse three and four. It says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. So, okay, what is David doing at first? He's avoiding it, right? That's what we talked about. David is avoiding. He says, I ref- when I refuse to confess my sin, and he's, and he's seeing the results of it, he can't take it anymore. Um, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength is evaporating like water. My body's wasting away. So first, he's avoiding, and he's miserable, and then we see what comes next, verse 5a and b. So you see, he comes to this point, he's like, I can't take this anymore. And then it says, until finally I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt, I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. So then what does he do? He confesses it to God. He gets real with God about his sin. He stops trying to avoid it. He confesses it to God. He, or he um, agrees with God about it. That, that's literally what the word confession means. It just means agreeing with God, how God views this situation, this sin. He gets the biblical perspective. You see that? Packer, and again in Weaknesses Away, says the gospel message first calls on us to be realistic in facing and admitting our sinfulness, our weaknesses, our actual transgressions, and our consequent guilt before God. Yeah. So he confesses, or he avoids it, then he finally confesses it, and then what happens when he confesses it? You see that in, now in verse 5c, just continuing along. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Is gone. He experiences God's total grace for the wrong that he had done, right? He receives God's mercy when he confesses and gets real with God about his sin. And then what? And then so when he experiences God's grace, this mercy, this freedom, um, all my guilt is gone, this pardoning, what then happens? Well, that's how he starts out the psalm, verses 1 and 2. He says, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. So it all leads him to joy in the Lord. That's how it ends. That's where, that's, David is this man after God's heart. He had joy in the Lord. It's not just like David just kind of found joy in the Lord under a rock. It's this whole thing that's ending in David's joy in the Lord. Yeah, so that's, that's David in the Old Testament. Now looking at Paul, you basically see the exact same sequence. So Paul, um, again, you guys know Paul. He was this Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, the highest up uh, religious leader at the time. Um, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Circumcised on the whatevereth day. Um, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was so zealous for God that he was going around, so devout in his Judaism that he's going around city to city, 
um, murdering Christians on these like evangelistic crusades out to kill Christians, right? And he thought he was, he was all in the name of devotion to God. Um, he oversaw Stephen's execution, the first Christian martyr. Um, and so what does Paul say on the whole topic of, obviously we know there's more to it than Paul, he has his conversion and stuff, but Paul knowing this history, this background about himself, what does he say about his own brokenness? Well, we can see in, uh, let's look at 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sin- sinners and I am worst of them all. Paul was a man who knew his brokenness. 1 Corinthians 15.9, you see the same thing, basically. He says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he knew his own brokenness. He knows the brokenness of um, going around on city to city murdering Christians, right? He didn't try to avoid that. He didn't try to deny that. He comes face to face with that. So what's, he knows that, right? He knows his brokenness. And then what's the kicker here is verse 16, uh, the following verse of First, uh, First Timothy 1. So he says, you know, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst of them all, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. He experiences God's mercy in response to his brokenness. We see the exact same thing in Romans 7. Again, Paul. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my, in my flesh. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will save me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? right? He's like, I can, oh man, I'm just so entangled with my brokenness and sin. And then again, you see that response in the following verse, in verse 25, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's brokenness led to a reception of God's mercy, right? Sounds similar with like David, right? So what's the culmination for all of this? Paul's brokenness, which then leads to mercy, reception of mercy. Well, you see, so we just looked at 1 Timothy. He, well, he says it in 2 Timothy, kind of what it all led to for him. In 2 Timothy 1.12, he's, he's like going on again talk, in, uh, talking about God's mercy. And then he says, For I know the one in whom I trust. He's talking about, in that passage, he's talking about how he's able to go and suffer for God. Why is that? Because he knows God's mercy. And, and what does all that lead to him? I know the one in whom I trust. Paul's saying he knows the one whom he serves. He knew God intimately and had depth with God. This know isn't just like an intellectual knowledge He didn't just perceive God intellectually. He knew him intimately in his heart. That's like the kind of the end for Paul. It's the same thing as what you saw for David is that joy in the Lord. It led to joy in the Lord for him. 
It's basically all saying the same thing. It's depth with God. So what's the sequence? The sequence that we see with all this kind of stepping back, we've already kind of hit on it, but to really boil it down, first is confession. Confession leads to mercy, leads to depth, right? Or their confession on the part of the person, David or Paul or us or whoever, leads to then experiencing and receiving God's mercy, then which leads to depth in your relationship with God. I don't know if you guys are blown away by some of this stuff. It's, it's crazy. And so worship team, you can uh, head on up as we kind of draw some conclusions. This is the sequence that we see um, with these guys. Okay, drawing some application. Then what are we supposed to do with all this information, with this kind of sequence? The exact same thing, right? This is the model that we're to follow. This is how we're supposed to view our brokenness. This model, it all starts with brokenness. The, what, what ends in depth with God, joy in the Lord, knowing God, starts with brokenness. You see that? That's amazing. So my question to you all tonight is do you know your own brokenness? Do you know your own brokenness? In the same way that David did, in the same way that Paul did, do you know your own brokenness? Is that just like a soundbite to you? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm broken. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or do you genuinely believe that you are depraved apart from Christ? On one instance, Jesus called the disciples evil. He said, you being so evil, you guys know how to give good gifts. Don't you think your father and heaven knows how to give you good gifts? Do you know yourself to be evil apart from Christ? So to speak. Because Jesus certainly did. <laughs> so our view what view do we have of brokenness? Our view needs to come in line with his, how he views it. What is the proper perspective? What is, it's, it's how Jesus sees it, like he did with the disciples there. The Bible teacher Alistair Begg, um, I really enjoy him, has a good quote on all this. He says, in order to know yourself as saved, you first have to know yourself as sinner. I like that a lot. It's only when we understand the depths of our brokenness that we can understand the depth of his provision. And when we understand the depths of his provision, it leads us to depth with God himself. Do you know God's response? David and Paul knew God's response to them in light of their brokenness. Do you know God's response to you in light of your brokenness? Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 
one, which is saying it's his good pleasure to bring you into his family, to adopt you as his child. That's God's mercy in response to our brokenness, right? We can have confidence in how God will respond to our brokenness. Because it says it in his word. Are you greatly broken? Then you're in the best position. Because you can know your redeemer intimately. You are not condemned to brokenness. So I say lean into that brokenness. And, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, hey, this really broken, crappy thing that I did, this is who I am apart from God. But I have an incredible Savior. Um, And it's when, it's then that the words of our Lord can ring true for us in our heart of hearts when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit when we can genuinely believe in that. I'm going to close with um, a poem um, that I really enjoy uh, that hits on just everything we've been talking about, the blessedness of brokenness. And uh, it's based on 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which is that verse that says, talks about, you know, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness um, by Annie Johnston Flint. And this isn't in the notes, I kind of, or in the PowerPoint, I kind of just, added it at the end, but if you could listen along, um, it's titled, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he has multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. Lord God, we just confess that without you we have no shot, Lord. And we confess that we just don't know that enough. God, we rely on our own self-effort, on our own righteousness. We're so quick to forget, Lord. But God, would you help us to remember? Would you help us to remember you and your provision, Lord? Would you help us to have the proper biblical perspective on our brokenness, Lord, that we would know that we are not condemned to it, God, but you have rescued us out of it. Father, and we pray that um, this would just lead to a greater experience of your mercy, Lord, that would take us to greater depths in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.